Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we're continuing our series, Reasons to Believe. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Born Again. I want to begin by reading John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. I want to talk about eternal life. That's the most precious commodity that any man, woman, boy, or girl can have. Eternal life speaks of two things. First of all, it is the description of a quality of life. It is a life that is full of eternity. It is a life full of God, full of joy, meaning, peace, full of abundance. Secondly, eternal life is a life that never ends. No one can take away the abundance. Not even death can rob you of it. It's a qualitative life that never ends. Who wouldn't want that? Jesus came to give us eternal life. You know, we've been studying the life of Jesus from the book of John. Chapter 1 identifies who Jesus is. He's the great creator. He is God the Son come to us in human flesh. Chapter 2 identifies what Jesus came to do. By changing the water into wine and cleansing the temple, Jesus announces that the pathway through to eternal life does not lie in religious holy sites or ritual practices. Ceremonial cleansing does not bring eternal life. Neither does the sacrifice of animals in the temple. Both of them cannot change the tenure of life. We can do all the religion we want and still remain fundamentally who we are. You know, in a sense, Jesus came to announce the end of all religion. It doesn't matter if it's Judaism and Islam or Hinduism, Buddhism, or some ritualistic form of Christianity. It doesn't matter if you have a shrine or a statue of Jesus that has cried or bled or a sacred location. None of these things brings you eternal life. Bathing in the Ganges will not make you clean. Going to the Hajj will not impart life. Lighting candles, burning incense, eating kosher, performing rituals, all of it fails. It may remind you of life, but it doesn't rescue from death. You know, it was Van Morrison who sang, Precious time is slipping away. You know, you're only king or queen for a day. It doesn't matter to which God you pray. Precious time is slipping away. Oh, how we need eternal life. But how do we get eternal life? John's going to tell us by introducing us to three people. The first one found in chapter 3 is Nicodemus, a devoutly religious man. The second in chapter 4 is a woman in Samaria, a sexually immoral woman who has become estranged from the religious establishment of her culture. And the third in chapter 5 is a man with a long-term disability, the disabled man at the healing pool of Bethesda. The three of them are very different. 
Their life circumstances can hardly be compared with each other. The interaction Jesus had with the three is on one hand very different, and yet, remarkably, each one has the same need. Each one of them is actually in need of eternal life. Whatever they have been doing in the past has not given them what they need the most. You know, I think these three people reflect the kind of people we find in our society. Religious people, secular people who are estranged from any religious community, and suffering people. We're going to start by looking at the first of them, Nicodemus the religious man. Some of us will identify with him and some of us will not, depending upon whether or not you're religious. But please don't let your life circumstances cloud your vision from what this passage can teach us. This passage is an invitation to examine our lives. Some of us will examine ourselves and discover that, you know, we've never had eternal life. And some of you will conclude today that you want to get it. Now, this message from what we hear today and what we're going to hear tomorrow might just change you forever. Some of us will conclude that we have the absolute certainty of eternal life, but we may learn how to share the message of eternal life more effectively with others, especially of those who are religious. I received a wonderful letter some time ago. It was from a young woman that I've known for some time, and previously I'd had the marvelous privilege of, of seeing her ushered into the kingdom of God. She'd been a woman oppressed by demons, but I saw Christ set her free. And then she not only turned around and won her brother to Christ, but she won her father to Christ as well. Her home used to be violent and abusive. And here's what she wrote me. She said, I'm, I'm actually pretty happy to be with my parents. Things are so incredibly different here than when I grew up. So I love being around dad and mom now because they're so happy and so much in love. I pondered that phrase for some time, so happy and so much in love. A new quality of life had come not only into her, but it came into her family. It's a quality of life that cannot be destroyed. It's called eternal life, and if you don't have it, you need to get it. So let's find out how. Let's look back at our text, verses 1 to 2. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So I want us to imagine the kind of man Nicodemus was. Now, first of all, he's a Pharisee. And one of the marks of the theology of the Pharisees, unlike the Sadducees, is that the Pharisees believed in life after death. And he believes in eternal life. He, he's convinced that God raises the dead. He, he trusts the word of God because the Pharisees believed that the scriptures came directly from God. And furthermore, this man is a teacher of faith in Israel. The text also says that he's a ruler of the Jews. Now, that might mean that he exercises political office in Israel, but most likely it does mean that he exercises leadership among the Pharisees, and so in terms of his profession, well, he was at the top of his game. We'll also see that he's a man of learning. He's well-educated. He's, he's able to articulate his theology. So first of all, this is a religious man who has advanced in religious circles to become a leader. The second thing that I notice about Nicodemus is that he's been observing Jesus. He calls him rabbi, teacher. It's a title of honor. He also acknowledges that Jesus has come from God. He has seen the miracles, and unlike others, he's not dismissed them. You know, we have to assume, therefore, that he's not a man who's quickly driven by the prejudices of others. 
And I assume, therefore, when, when intolerance of Jesus was reaching a zenith, he was not given to mob mentality. A man who's able to think on his own. He's, he's probably a rare man indeed. We know that's true because in John chapter 7, verse 51, when the Pharisees were ready to condemn Jesus, it was Nicodemus who spoke up and asked, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And all he got on that occasion was the, the scathing condemnation of his colleagues. And the last time we hear of Nicodemus is after the crucifixion of Jesus when it was especially difficult to express any solidarity with Jesus. And according to John 19, verse 39, that Nicodemus brought burial spices to lay upon the dead body of Jesus. By that time, I, I assume that the impact that Jesus has made upon Nicodemus, well, it was already quite profound. But today, he's beginning the discovery of who Jesus is. And he's come at night. I know that some of us want to suggest that he's probably trying to hide his visit from others, and perhaps that's the case, but the text doesn't say so. You know, most Pharisees studied at night. and He came at the hour when it was common for him to discuss theology. But there's a third thing I want you to notice about him. Notice verse 2. is his use of the word we. Not I know, but we know. He's coming to Jesus on behalf of his learned colleagues. He's a part of an intellectual, academic, religious, and political community, and he wants Jesus to know it. Now, I remember a number of years ago, a man coming to my office, and he told me that a number of PhDs were discussing my sermons, and he wanted to discuss them with me, and I, and I sensed it immediately. He was telling me how important and intelligent and insightful and, and powerful he was. I sense the same thing with Nicodemus. We are talking, he says. You know, he's letting Jesus know that, that when they're done, he's going to take these results back to the intellectual community and, and they're going to assess the value of what he said. And so Nicodemus is all of that. And, you know, in many ways he's impressive, but in other ways, he's more than willing to let Jesus know just how impressive he is. He wants to let Jesus know he's not just an ordinary guy. You know, position will do that, you know. We want to know. And both Jesus and Nicodemus know who we are. They are the most powerful men in Israel. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. Please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. I want you to look back at John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. You know, there we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing, 
But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. You know, there's a kind of believing that results in no internal and external change at all. See, there's believing and then there's believing. The Pharisees believed in God, but they were men whose inner life had not been powerfully transformed by God. And and by the way, that happens today as well. You and I hear about it all the time. Someone gets ripped off in business, and then they tell us the person who did it was a Christian and always goes to church, but treats people brutally. Or someone else believes in Jesus, but when the need is there, they will ruthlessly crucify the character of someone else just to get what he wants. Someone believes in Jesus, but is sleeping around. Someone believes in Jesus and is still selfish as anybody else. There's a kind of believing that never changes life. And then there's another kind of faith that infuses you with life. Look, one person says that he or she believes and nothing changes. The next person scarcely even has to say they believe and their life resonates and breathes out the new life of God. Listen to me, there are many people who are deeply religious, who may believe all the facts of their faith, who know a thing or two about God, but who have never been changed, who've never been born again, and that might be you. You might be thinking that all is fine. You've done your best. You're a spiritual person, but you're blind to your sins, and you've never been born again. I want to take you ahead to John 5, 44. There Jesus says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? So it might be, again, we don't know, but it might be that Nicodemus, by saying, we know that you're a teacher come from God, was very much at this point in time still locked into the approval of his peers. Perhaps he has a greater desire for peer approval than he ever let on. Maybe he wants the inside track on Jesus and can become an expert on him. He's got all sorts of motives for coming. Of course, we don't know, but we do know that he, inside of his life, has never been changed by God. Fear of people, according to Jesus, can keep you out of the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis, the great Cambridge University scholar, for a great period of time resisted coming to Christ because he was concerned what his academic colleagues might think. You know, many people have what I call this this Nicodemus disease, more interested in impressing an academic community than obtaining eternal life. And perhaps that is you. In order to obtain eternal life, you must want it more than you want anything else. It will never be an add-on. It must replace everything else. A number of years ago, a very religious woman came to speak to me at the end of a service. Saved from what, she asked defiantly. I asked her what she meant, and she told me that she didn't believe she needed to be saved. I mean, from what? Well, I told her from sin, and she said, if what you're saying is true, then I'll have to admit to everyone that all my religious duties, my work, my effort, hasn't amounted to anything, and I'll never accept that. That's the spirit of Nicodemus. He's important. He knows it. He's a representative of his community, and his community will judge Jesus after Jesus has spoken with Nicodemus. Now, to verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you might ask, what kind of a reply is that? How does this answer Nicodemus' question, his query to find out who Jesus actually is? 
The answer is that Jesus was intending to show Nicodemus that he had no standing at all. His religion, his intellectual standing, his his political leadership, his theological degrees are all less than dung. In fact, they're getting in the way. You have to be born again or you will never see the kingdom of God. But what did Jesus mean by that? You know, I've got a pastor friend who, when he was a boy, remembers asking his pastor about this. And his pastor simply said, well, don't worry about it. It's just not important. Now, listen, if Jesus thought you couldn't get to heaven unless you were born again, I'm going to say to you, this is very important. I've heard some people say that the phrase born again is actually only found in the Bible once, right here, and no other place, so it can't be all that important. But in fact, both the phrase and the concept is used over and over again in Scripture. Let me give some examples. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, listen now, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration means rebirth. It's it's another way of saying born again. Regeneration means something that was dead is made alive. And according to Titus, it means rescuing us from our enslavement to passions and pleasures and disobedience to God and envying others and hating others and reaction to others brought about by the darkness and the evil within. Listen, if that's you, Christ can save you from that. But something that is dead, a new nature, must be born in you. Let's look at another new birth passage. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see, the new birth introduces us to eternal life. Let's look at one more passage. 1 John 5.18 says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. Again, when you're born again or born from above or born of God, you will overcome sin and you will be protected from Satan himself. This is indestructible life. It's indestructible because God has placed his life inside of you. Now, in case you missed this, let's make sure that we all understand. Jesus taught that the new birth was essential to entering the kingdom of God. He made it clear that all other qualifications, even religious qualifications, all our supposed moral qualifications, they're all useless. What we need was a miraculous action by God. There must be a transformation of your inner self, your heart. God has to bring to life something from above into your soul. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say, you need to do this. I said, God needs to do this. Just like our own birth, we didn't bring ourselves into being. So it is with the new birth. We don't transform our inner selves through our effort. God does it. And according to Jesus, it's done by the Holy Spirit. And I don't care who you are. 
You might be Adolf Hitler or Mother Teresa. You must be born again. You were born once. Now you must be born again. And new life must come to life inside of you. And that's especially difficult for religious people. See, all of us agree that it must take some action of grace on the part of God to forgive a rapist or a murderer, an adulterer, a thief, a habitual liar, maybe a a pornographer, even the immoral woman at the well in the next chapter, but a genuinely decent religious person? That's our own stumbling block as well. I know of many religious people who see no need for this. Religion can be the force in your life that actually does not lead you toward God, but it can be the very thing that keeps you away from God. I can't even begin to state how important it is to hear this. If you've been a religious person all your life, listen, religion does not make you right with God. You are dead in sins. That's what the Bible says. Jesus reaffirmed that. Something supernatural must happen to you. And does that shock you? I imagine it shocked Nicodemus. All his life, he had found security in religious observance, in his own decent character. He didn't know that if he died, he would never make it to the kingdom of God. Now, tomorrow, I'm going to describe what that new thing is, this new birth, and how to get it. But today, I want to say that we need to understand this. The natural condition of every single human being is that we're unfit for the kingdom of God. You must be born again, and new birth has to happen, or you'll never inherit eternal life. John, I think over time, I've got the sense that there's those that, that believe they, they, in essence, inherit their faith. They've grown up in the church, and, uh, and, and it's just become part of who they are. But what we're talking about here is something that's very intentional, very personal, very individual. Yeah, you know, Ben, we talked before about, um, you know, second-generation Christianity. And really, the book of John is written uh, to the next generation of believers. So I think John is pressing this home because this is a problem. Uh, we uh, grow up as a part of a religious community, and we just naturally assume that that we belong. And we might even have prayed the appropriate prayer, but you know we never did that with a heart of faith. And so we've put our faith in all these religious observances that we have. And that's the word to us. We must be born again. An individual, something must happen. I must be changed by the Spirit of God. Without that, there is no eternal life. Well, we look forward to your message tomorrow, John. So join us again here tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the Ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now, they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. 
please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca today.